Welcome, uh, Andy Dunn, to The Intersection. I'm super excited to talk to you. For a little bit, I'm going to do this intro. Andy Dunn is a serial entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of Bonobos, which he ran as CEO for over a decade. I believe it was the first direct-to-consumer fashion brand, right? Certainly one of the first that was digital at its core, right? So we had direct-to-consumer brands, Land's End and L.L. Bean and things like this. But in terms of like internet-driven D2C, yeah, I think maybe we were the first. Maybe, maybe. So uh, you guys ended up selling to Walmart for a lot of money, which we'll talk about later. Andy is now working on building an app and a platform called Pumpkin Pie, which is kind of like the Tinder for platonic relationships. He's been a formal... Uh, former board member of Hinge. He went to the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He was featured in Forbes 40 Under 40. And although he's based in New York now, he's actually from Chicago, just like me. And last but not least, Andy Dunn also happens to have bipolar disorder, just like me, and uh, wrote a entire book on it called Burn Rate, Launching a Startup While Losing a Mo My Mind, which I listened to the entire audiobook version of, narrated by Andy himself. Lost to discuss, so little time. Welcome, Andy Dunn, to the intersection. Matt, thanks for having me, bud. <laughs> so the first thing I want to talk about is kind of jumping straight into bipolar, and then I guess we can talk about business later. I often feel like mania is maybe the most misunderstood aspect of bipolar. And after, especially afterwards when we do all these things and we feel very guilty and having to try and explain that our manic self is kind of a distorted version of ourself you mentioned in your book you wanted people you worked with during your episodes and whatnot to or after to hear your own explanations of of what happened to you before they heard it from someone else and i've definitely felt this as a fear i carry around how have you navigated the anxieties of someone else's perception of your diagnosis or behavior during an episode to potentially affect your reputation in business? Yeah, Matt, it's such an awesome question. I think I overestimated before the book came out the degree to which people aren't thinking about me. People are thinking about themselves. And so when we have a memory or when we have something in our past that so defines our self-perception, I think we overestimate actually how little that impacts other people. <laughs> so where for me, it felt so humiliating and shameful to have been psychotic, the messianic delusions, the delusions of grandeur, the uh, bizarre or dangerous or unsettling or unhinged behavior, the truth I found is that our people around us, our friends, our colleagues, our family, our loved ones, they just want us to be well. Mm. And the fact that those things happened, we hold as being deeply shameful or unspeakable. But it's not really the case that once we're actually in an open dialogue about it and diffuse the fact that that's been something that's unspoken, by speaking it, we expunge that shame because shame is what's unspeakable. And so in a way, I think the book was a, it was an attempt at defiance, defying the societal norms that kept me silent 
And the beautiful thing about the reception to the book that I've realized is I could have shared this a long time ago. There's less holding us back than we realize. And certainly I think we're holding ourselves back. We're judging ourselves. We're being hard on ourselves than anyone is being on us. Everyone is thinking about themselves in their own lives and their own hopes and dreams and problems and all of that way more than we, we would think. It's funny, right? Because for the longest time, I had this fear that someone would come up to me to tell me about how someone else told them to avoid me after what happened. But that still to date has not happened. So Yeah, I think that everyone's got their shit. You know what I mean? And some, <laughs> of, some of us have a diagnosis and some of us don't. Uh, but I find that being vulnerable with the things that we are typically holding close or hiding is actually, if anything, a mechanism for connection. And it actually builds trust because you're like, oh, wow, this person's sharing this with me. Maybe that frees up some space, maybe not now, but over time for me to be honest with them too. It humanizes the person. And in a way, it's a, it's a, um, it's a give trust to get trust kind of a dynamic. And and probably that thing that you're worried about or we're, we're worried about to the extent that it was even an issue, once you're, on, once you're owning your own experience and sharing it, you diffuse the power of that. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. Eminem in his rap battles, right? He used right, to win these t- rap battles by saying, <laughs> by saying such horrible things about himself, so self-deprecating, so incisive, so funny. If you say it about yourself, no one else can say it about you. You, you take – you take the power back in your own life story by sharing mm. it proactively and transparently when the time is right, when you feel like you can trust the people that you're sharing it with. I agree a thousand percent. How long has it been since your book came out? A, a couple of years uh, at this point? Came out in May of 22. So oh, wow. hard to believe, but only seven months ago or, you know, we're in our fourth printing now. Uh, we made it to paperback, which is super exciting. Not all books make it to paperback. We were uh, Amazon number one bestseller in the mental health and entrepreneurship categories for Very a period cool. of time. Yeah, we've been so lucky, man. And um, you know, good things, even more good things coming on that front, which I'll, I'd love to tell you about down the road when they're more relevant. Okay. How do you feel like it's been received so far? Have other entrepreneurs with bipolar reached out to you and been like, Wow, this is so interesting. Because that's how it was for me, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's been amazing. I would say it's been like jumping into a wall of pillows. Mm. So much love, so much acceptance, so much affirmation. And to be honest with you, Matt, way more than people talking to me about my story or asking whatever questions, making comments. In fact, what it has done is open the floodgates for people to share with me. So I've now got over 2,000 direct messages I've received across LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, primarily those three, and some emails as well. And it's been an outpouring of people sharing their stories. A lot of them are stories of bipolar, many of them first person, many of them a family member or a loved one. And there's been a whole lot of other stuff, right? The the panoply of mental health issues is large and wide. 
and there's not a single family that's untouched by this. There's not a single family that if you go across to the to cousins and you go back three generations to your grandparents' generation, if you look at that whole crew, there's not a single family untouched by someone who's dealt with a severe mental health issue. Hmm. And then, and this is the kicker, every human being who makes it to say 25, let alone 30 or 40 or old man like me, 43, gets, no. thrown, on their <laughs> a- gets thrown on their ass by something at some point. And that doesn't need to be a mental illness. That could be grief. That could be addiction. That could be someone else in the family's mental health challenge. That could be dealing with the mental health issues that result from a physical malady, the aging of mm. loved one. Um, there are so many ways to experience mental health challenges. And I think that's why the story strikes a chord. Not because my story is so interesting, although, you know, there's some colorful anecdotes in there, <laughs> you know, being being charged with felony assault on the precipice of um, a, a, a multi-hundred million dollar deal. But, but really what it is, Matt, is it's been a lightning rod for people to share things that they have kept secret. And so it's been such a massive privilege for me to be on the receiving end of so many of those stories. And if anything, it's made me feel less alone. And also it's reminded me that I'm not a mental health professional. (laughs) Like my wife has joked with me like, hey, you're a mental health patient. So it's important to not try to be something that I'm not with other people, to have a pleasant exchange, to share some ideas if I have any, and then to the extent that it's relevant, refer them to the right places. Uh, Because, you know, if you've already got an underlying savior complex, it's probably not a good idea to try to save people who are writing you with their, you know, their deepest, darkest secrets on social media. Speaking of being a mental health professional and helping people seek support. One thing I wanted to talk about is that this uh, ecosystem of support and medical support around bipolar has, I'm sure, been tricky for many, many, many people. And I want to get your thoughts on the process of medication because I know a lot of other people with bipolar that I've met including myself have resisted the idea of taking meds and I'm sure you and people around you did I mean I know I did from reading the book Um, there's this process of having to tweak the meds to get it to this optimal point that works for you in your own life and therapy and all this stuff and it often becomes super expensive really fast and I know you've mentioned the idea of mental health insurance and so I'm curious to get your thoughts on the process of uh, taking meds and being comfortable with accepting it and maybe solutions to stuff that could be less costly for people in the future yeah you know what's interesting we have hopefully, regular health insurance in this day and age, whether through work or through universal health care. There are exceptions to that, and some folks are still not covered. But health insurance has table stakes, right? It's the foundation. And then if we're fortunate and our employer pays for it, we might have dental insurance and vision insurance. And so I think it's kind of funny in a not funny way that we don't have mental health insurance, right? It's like, well, let's take care of our teeth and our eyes. But as for our brains, best of luck with that. <laughs> uh, and yet our brains are the thing, right? They're the, that is the thing that conjures our reality. That is what makes us human is, you know, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Uh, there's probably something too I feel, therefore I am. 
Um, so we have to do a better job as a society of investing as much or more in people's mental health as we do in their physical health. And so we've got to do that. And that solution has got to come from a collaboration between employers who provide insurance, insurance companies, mental health providers, and probably, you know, local, state, and federal government. And I think we're on that journey, right? We have billions of dollars flowing into mental health tech now. That was a trickle five years ago. We have conversations happening at companies like the conversations that have I've gotten to have about burn rate in my journey. You know, I've spoken at old school companies, right? I've talked to BlackRock. I've talked to General Electric. Hmm. I've also spoken to venture capital firms. I've spoken to their portfolios. I've spoken to late stage startups like Carta and a lot of super early stage companies as well. So people are coming around this. And one of the most progressive things I've seen one startup do is they're providing a $2,000 a year mental health stipend for non-reimbursable medical mental health expenses. And so I think we're going to need to see that kind of progressivism from leaders. And that's why I think having the conversation about how common this stuff is, is so critical. Hmm. Fascinating. Super cool. I'm really glad that you've been able to use your platform to talk to so many larger institutions about mental health and its intersection with an entrepreneurship. That's so dope to me. An another thing I wanted to touch on is... Uh, I'm, I think this happens to everybody in their life, basically, but it's very keen and peculiar with, with us is that I'm sure you'd agree you're never as much as a big shot as you think you are when you're manic or never as much as a loser as you think you are when you're depressed. So have your bipolar episodes given you a unique way to not get too caught up in your pride or self-loathing and how has that given you a perspective? Oh, man, that's such a Great question. I was just talking to a family member who's feeling depressed. Uh, he's been going through a number of issues, physical health wise, with COVID and some deleterious effects of COVID, as well as a lot of family stressors. And feels like there's no hope right now. And and I said to him, look, my doctor, Dr. Z, as I affectionately call him in burn rate, would always remind me when you're depressed, you feel like it's going to be forever. You have a sense this is going to be the mental state you're going to have for the rest of your life. And it's just not the case. Every depression at some point ends. Even if it's not through the great great medical interventions, it ends. Um, and hopefully and hopefully it's not, you know, hopefully one doesn't lose their, their life Um their life end by suicide, that's the worst way for it to end. Otherwise, at some point it's going to lift. And so it's hard, it's hard to grab onto that hope when depression by its very definition is the absence of hope. And so that's why getting back to your other question, it's so critical that we embrace medication as a way out because sometimes you just need help the same way that a raging headache can be addressed by a couple of Tylenol the same way that someone with kidney issues might need dialysis the same way that my father needed radiation for his prostate cancer we have to embrace medical 
pharmacological help as a gift from the gods that it's now available <laughs> to us and that modern science and medicine has advanced to a point rather than think somehow that there's some courage in not taking meds or not needing meds. And, you know, I'll always, I'll always notice that someone who's been through a mental health condition might, might declare triumphantly, I'm off my meds now, right? I don't need them or I got through it. And I'm thinking, I hope that's okay. <laughs> like, I hope I never say I'm off my meds. Like, if you hear me say that, Matt, you know, call I'm my like, wife. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Right? You know, I have bipolar one. It's one of the most severe mental illnesses on the planet. And thank God there's mood stabilizing medications to reduce the highs and provide balance and buoyancy to the lows. So I think taking medication is so key. And I think therapy is so important. I think every person should be so lucky to be in therapy, you know, at some point in their lives. And I think for me, I do it twice a week because I have to, you know, it's just, just a part of managing my mood. And if I, if one has a mood disorder, it's probably not a luxury uh, to seek pharmacological help and to seek the help of a mental health practitioner with a real rhythm. Mm. Well, relating to therapy and all different types of stuff about bipolar, I feel like I could go on and on. But instead, I'm going to jump into the business side of Andy Dunn. And I want to ask you uh, what it was like. I'm sure you get this question a lot. But, you know, as you were running Bonobos and everything was happening with how you were feeling internally and there's big deals going on, uh, at the... At, when you ended up selling Bonobos to Walmart for three hundred and ten million dollars, like, what did you do? What did you do afterwards? What was that kind of like aftermath period uh, like for you? Well, you raised such an important point a moment ago, which is the aftermath of mania. You know, we talked about depression. Mania is such a tricky thing, as you know. You know, on some level, when you're in a manic state frequently, at least for me, you've got this messianic delusion going. And I like to joke to people, I can joke about it now, being God is amazing. It feels you know what really I mean? like, good, actually. <laughs> it feels amazing. It feels I mean, really might we all get to might we all get to be superheroes for a period of time? And it's only in retrospect that you realize you're like kind of the opposite of a superhero when you're manic. Right, you're actually a liability for everyone else. You're yeah. a danger to yourself and others. My doctor jokes: no one manic could ever save the world because you can't accomplish anything when you're manic. Now, when you're hypomanic, you can, which is the antecedent. It's the precursor to mania. In fact, I've got a book over here on my bookshelf called "The Hypomanic Edge," which mm -hmm. I'm digging into to understand a little bit more around that mood state, which is both powerful and dangerous. But from a manic standpoint, you know, it's a bummer coming down in a lot of ways, in spite of the fact that it's a blessing. It's a bummer realizing, oh, no, I'm just an ordinary person. It's almost like the death of this dream that you just had, the death of this vision. And you think, oh, my God, I'm just an ordinary ghost. <laughs> and now I've got to come to grips with that ordinariness. And that itself can be an additional driver of depression yeah. On top of the pharmacological thing that's happening where right. – I don't even know if I'm using that word the right way. But where you're already likely to feel low after such a big high. So I'm with you there. And I think you know, as it pertains to the 
the question around the acquisition, you know, selling a company for for $300 million, it definitely was a peak experience. But the but the fascinating thing was it was like a triple peak experience where I got married, we had the 10-year anniversary of the company with the whole team out on a boat in Manhattan and just seeing this wonderful culture that we had built, then this huge economic event where our shareholders got paid and all of our team members who had stock options, which was everyone made money. And then me personally having the first like financial outcome that I'd ever had that was that was really meaningful. Um, and yet what I felt was just ice in my veins. Ah. I felt ice because I had, I had been through hell. The previous year I had been hospitalized at Bellevue in the psychiatric ward in New York. I went through six months of the most crippling depression I'd ever experienced. I didn't want to live. I had been through hell. I'd been through like a torture chamber and I got through it. I got through it not even as a credit to me primarily. I got through it because I had an awesome doctor and because I had an awesome girlfriend and then fiance and then wife. Upon her back, the strength of her spine and fortitude and acceptance, I was able to rebuild myself and I was able to get healthy. And only then was I able to figure out what had she been through and how do we process that and is our relationship going to work? And it was such an act of grace that she gave me the space to like Humpty Dumpty, I had to put myself back together again to be (laughs) able to show up, show up for her, right? Because that's just, we got to, you know, what do they say? Secure your own oxygen mask. And then the person next to you, like when the plane is going down or whatever. So I was so regimented by the time that deal happened. I had so, I had such a good cocktail of medication that we figured out. I had done a hundred therapy sessions, you know, two a week over 50 weeks. And so I was able to walk into my wedding day and the deal that was live that closed like a month later and actually feel stable, reliably stable internally and to have self-confidence in my own stability. So it was amazing and it was also a non-factor hmm. in terms of the fear, which would have been that my mood would spike, that these extraordinary life events actually can be triggers for mania, which is one of the most pernicious things about bipolar disorder. Hmm. It can be an unraveling that comes from a, a good mood. And I had the same thought when my son was born of how do I make sure that I'm as stable as can be for this peak life experience because my wife is going to be a new mother and my son is going to be a new human. The last thing in the world that they need is for me to not be a rock. And so that was another moment to really steal myself and be ready and have the regimen solid with the doctor. And even when the book came out, I joked to my doctor, I was like, should we just book a corner suite at Bellevue? Because I'm going to feel on top of the world with this story coming out and a book being published and on TV and talking about this thing that has been my nemesis and being open about it. And I, in fact, was worried about that itself being a stimulant from mania. And so we joked it would make a great story. You know, uh, entrepreneur publishes book on bipolar disorder and, you know, has manic episode. But it's not a story. <laughs> it's not a story that I wanted to be a part of my life. And so... And so that's where the regimen is so important. Sleep, medication, doctor, solid relationships with friends and loved ones, transparency about our emotions. If we can, nutrition, exercise. It's a lot of work, you know? 
I, I joke, it's like being an Olympic athlete. And the gold medal is that you die of something else, mm. right? The gold medal is that something else claims you in the end. Um, the gold medal is that you're not a liability for your family and loved ones because of this issue. Maybe you're going to be a liability in other ways, but let it be something else that you don't know about or don't see coming. Don't let it be this thing you know, because this is the this is the one you know is there, and so this one you can prepare for. This one you can do something about. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It is quite a lot to maintain, but it's it's very rewarding in the end. You're right because the other option is just like so terrible and never fun it's funny you use that uh, analogy of Humpty Dumpty because I use that a lot actually you mentioned talking about delusions of, of grandeur and grandiose delusions which is something that's a kind of interesting almost movie like experience you could make like a cartoon or a TV show out of it or whatever did you ever find that when you came out of mania and came out of any kind of episode and you were quote unquote normal did, that you still had to peel off some of those delusions a bit? That they were stuck? That they left an imprint that was really strong? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think that coming down from mania and the dreams generated by the mania happen on different time frames. Mm. There's like a residue that's hard to part with. And it took a while for me in therapy to process and understand how normal it actually is to have this superhero or godlike complex. My my doctor explains it in a very Freudian way, which is that we're all born with a god complex, which is to say as an infant, our mother and our parents is our, are our whole world. And if you think about what an infant does, they cry and they get milk. They cry and they get attention. They cry and they get held. And so you're early experience of life is your every single need is taken care of and infants are like tyrants in that way Mm. they're like gods we we worship babies right we do anything for them we worship dogs and babies those are the two things we worship and so (laughs) it is a devastating realization in life over time that we are not this omnipotent being that we began life as and even though we don't have conscious memories of that experience, unconsciously we have it. Unconsciously, and for that reason, we have this unbelievable bond most often with our, with our mothers because they were, they were that provider for us. And then just as we're coming down from that, we start to watch Disney movies. <laughs> and every Disney movie is about an ordinary child who's oppressed who turns out to have superpowers. <laughs> it's like an orphan who turns out to be a superhero. It's the story of Cinderella, right? It's the story of the entire Harry Potter series. Obviously, that's not Disney. And so we are incepted with this complex. And also, who wants to die, right? As we get whatever it is, the age of eight or 10, we start to learn that we're not going to get to do this forever. I remember learning that being like, what? Like this ends? And so who wouldn't want to access immortality? Who wouldn't want the ability to (laughs) control the world with their own thoughts? Although my doctor reminds me that would be quite boring. 
right? Actually being In omnipotent a way it would be. Might, might become a bore. So this stuff is deep. It's lodged deep. And when it surfaces during mania, the way that it does in like a dreamlike state, it's powerful, right? Really consumes the psyche and the soul takes over. And often it's accompanied by a really benevolent intent, you know, yes. to save the world in some way, to um, he- heal the earth, to eradicate poverty for, I can remember thinking like all the prisons should be opened and everyone yeah. should just walk out, right? And like, well, shit, that's San Francisco now and probably not a great idea. You know, there's, there's probably better ways to do things. So yeah, you know, this stuff... This stuff takes hold. And so the job for me becomes how do I take all this ambition and this desire to do good and channel it through the real world? Channel it through just being an ordinary guy trying to do extraordinary things without these superpowers. And that becomes the goal. And so what my doctor has helped me with is like don't give up. Don't give up on those dreams. You know? You're probably not going to be the Messiah, which is a bummer. But can you do great things in your life? Of course. And so that becomes the challenge is like channeling all that id through the constraints of the physical universe, right? Through the constraints of reality. And that's not easy to do. How do you let those dreams change but not die? Hmm. In a funny way, I think your average person almost always wants to be the chosen one in some way so even they have to kind of let go of that and still realize that they can just be the best possibility of themselves that's a great point i love that well talking about pumpkin pie you're creating this new social media kind of and uh but it's 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 about connecting with people also in the real world mainly the real world right and making new platonic friends this is your current project and you're trying to take it to the next level tell us more about pumpkin pie yeah we have a new uh chairman and a new investor i'm really excited to share who that is down the road and he has this saying he borrowed it from a sticker he saw on a laptop more social less media and so the goal of pumpkin pie is how do we get people off their sofas and into the real world Mm. how do we bring people using an app off of that app and into real life Mm -hmm. um and we're focused right now in new york city we're focused on small group hangouts so picture trivia, bowling, bingo, bar nights, board games, all these things that might bring us together and where there's like a shared activity. And we're seeing some nice momentum. You know, we've got a few thousand people on the app. We're in a we're in an open beta mode right now. We're learning a lot. We got some big dreams. Uh, but to our previous conversation, Matt, we've got to those big dreams have to pass through the <laughs> narrowest possible starting point. Right? Like how do we be hyper relevant for a handful of 20 year olds living in lower Manhattan, Brooklyn, and let's get that right. And then we earn the right to the next problem and the next problem and the next problem. So we're very much in that startup iteration and ideation phase, early days. Hmm. So you're a former board member at Hinge, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you learned various stuff about the dating world. And you also had this learning I don't know if it was from your guys' own data or, or I forget exactly how you learned this, 
but that platonic friendships all need mutual vulnerability and ongoing continuous unplanned interactions that was really interesting to me i was like whoa so what is it about this special like uh platonic friend soup that you're making the secret sauce maybe you can't give it all away but no i can give it away because it's so hard to <laughs> it's so hard to cook you know it's so hard to cook it so if someone else can figure it out amazing and it probably takes the whole ecosystem um it's like crypto like the whole ecosystem needs to work on it for it to work but unlike crypto there's a point so um uh okay so you know how you know how sometimes in life a book or a movie or a tv show or a song or something kind of hits you right at the moment that you needed to hear it Mm -hmm. and you're like so excited you're like this is here right when i needed to hear it so this book showed up it's called platonic and it's written by a woman named dr marissa franco and it basically talked about how the ingredients in a platonic friendship are what you said, mutual vulnerability, shared interests. And then the kindling is created in five to seven unexpected, unplanned group hangouts where you connect before you ever decide to hang out one-on-one. And so we brought on the chief product officer at Hinge where I'd been an early investor and his challenge and the challenge our, our CTO, COO had been making for some time was how do we create surface area around small group connection? Because small group connection is actually the first step to platonic friendship formation. Hmm. And so that became that became the goal of let's start to get those small groups together. And in a way, there's companies that have done this 20 years ago, a company called Meetup was founded and they they addressed this and you know lots of users and they had a really good run um but to our knowledge no one has replicated that for gen z and figured out how to address this next generation you said something really interesting i, I maybe it was in your talk at the stanford graduate school of business where you said you love startups because they're a collision of fantasy and reality so i want to know how delusional Versus how realistic should a founder be when launching a business? Because I feel like you got to be both in a way, no? Oh my God, you've hit on the core thing and I'm working on something important around this. So I would welcome your thoughts and the thoughts of your listeners if you want to you know, tweet them at me sure. at done on Twitter or, or whatever. You know, I don't think this is the right thing to say in this day and age, but, but screw it. You know, how crazy is too crazy? And over the last month, just seeing Elon Musk and what he's been up to and Elizabeth Holmes sentenced to jail and SBF, you know, in the, in the crypto world being, being whatever, arrested or indicted or whatever's happening. And I think it's a fine line. Um, it's a fine line between delusion and innovation. Mm-hmm. And uh, – I'd love your thoughts and the thoughts of others because I'm working on a project around this right now and I don't I don't know the answer. I I do know that the smartest job description I've ever heard for a CEO comes from Ken Chenault, who was the CEO of American Express for a long time. He was one of the the great early pioneers as a African American Fortune fifty CEO lived through some amazing times, some hard times, you know, the loss of uh, staff in 9-11, transformation of that brand into a, a premier luxury brand. And he says the job of a leader is, is impossible, but it's simple. Four words, two bullets. Create hope 
and define reality. And I think there's a tension between those things. And as you know, and as we know, there's a lot of hope and fantasy to go around that comes from delusion. But it, you also have to define reality. Those things have to, you got to find where that tension is and you got to live on that razor's edge. And it's hard to do. Mm. And, and my only insight, Matt, is you probably can't be both on the same day. I have my create hope days and I have my define reality days. But if I try to create hope and define reality back and forth in the same day, it's hard to accomplish much. So I try to embrace days where I'm feeling kinetic and a little bit dreamy and do what I can those days to not drive my team nuts. And then on the define reality days, I try not to scare the hell out of everyone, let alone myself. Oh, this isn't going to work. We're going to fail. We're going to run out of money. And somehow over the course of 365 days in a year, find some kind of a happy medium where you've injected enough hope and delusion and enough reality to kind of meet in the middle. Hmm. And I would say if I can be hopeful two out of three working days and realistic slash dejected and paranoid one out of three, I'll take it. You know what I mean? There's just yeah, going to yeah. be there's just going to be 100 bad days a year. That's just life. You know, probably. Maybe 50 if we have a good year, right? And so on the balance, if we can have two more two good days to every bad day, well I'll take it, at least for me. Matt, really speaking of the collision of fantasy and reality, I've got to go. The fantasy is we do this for another two hours. The reality is I have to go watch our two-year-old. Okay, no worries. Well, thanks for your time, Andy. And uh, if you even have just five more seconds to give somebody with who's an entrepreneur with bipolar hope that they don't have to compromise their dreams due to bipolar. They don't have to compromise their fantasies that took them so far. Well, I mean, look. There, you've got a, you do have a superpower and you do have a kryptonite. The superpower is you have latent in your brain the ability to dream bigger than most people. You've got a dream engine that is profound. The flip side is it comes with a price, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Everything comes with a price. And the price is that very thing, that engine can ruin you. It can rev you so hot that you lose your mind. And terrible things can happen. And it has a flip side, which is that light that burns so brightly can just just about go out and go black. And so the question becomes, how do you harness that gift without letting it consume you? And Thank my, you, my, my advice is uh, take your meds. <laughs> 